Welcome to Byzantium and Friends. I'm your host, Anthony Caldellus. There's a certain linear narrative about the history of classical things with which we're all familiar to some degree or another. It's reproduced often in popular media and the press, um, and certainly still in schools, uh, perhaps less so in university textbooks, and it's certainly not very popular among actual academic historians. The narrative goes something as follows. There was a time in classical Greece and Rome when a whole bunch of wonderful things were devised, democracy and reason and philosophy, um, and that there's a genealogical connection between those ancient societies and the modern you know, Western Europe and the United States, the modern West. Um, and this narrative jumps over uh, quite a bit of the stuff in between. Uh, so there's the fall of the Roman Empire, at which point there's some... Um, sparring uh, over the question of whether the rise of Christianity and the, the sort of barbarian invasions, uh, the barbarian kingdoms were a, a bad thing in the short term or a good thing in the long term. Uh, but uh, anyway, the narrative then resumes uh, with the Renaissance and specifically with the creation of the modern nation states, uh, which then leads directly to our world of uh, democracy and science and capitalism and all the good things like heavy metal and so on. The idea here is, of course, that the earlier phases of this story somehow belong to the later phases. There's a kind of teleology built into this um, so that ancient Greece and Rome belong to the narrative of the West. And the problem with this narrative um, is twofold. There's one about the actual claims that it makes the positive claims, and I won't be talking about those today, but possibly the bigger problem with it has to do with its omissions, its silences, the things it jumps over and the things that it um, omits. And there's a lot that it omits. Um, so, for example, it traditionally omits certainly all of Byzantium and certainly the, um, uh, the Islamic world, uh, which for a number of centuries, um, possibly all of them, uh, was one of the main uh, shareholders of the reception of the classical tradition and invested considerable resources and mental energies in developing um, ancient ideas uh, in, a, in new directions. A friend and colleague of mine, uh, Kevin Van Bladel, now at uh, Yale University, has devised the concept of the classical Near East, uh, which I hope he develops as a, as a book project, um, which is about precisely how deeply embedded classical themes and, and ideas and concerns are in the um, in the Muslim world, from the, almost it's from its beginning until now, um, it's not an accident that even the Quran mentions Alexander and Rome, and I'm told there are Neoplatonic ideas uh, embedded in it as well. Well, there's nothing more classical than the Parthenon in Athens, and this narrative has been applied to the Parthenon as well. Um, almost all of the research that takes place on the history of the monument and its significance focuses on classical antiquity, um, a bit less in its subsequent phases in, in, in ancient times. And I realized by the time I had accumulated a large amount of information about the Parthenon Byzantium, it was a hugely important temple, uh, church to the Virgin, uh, possibly more important for the Byzantines as such than it had ever been in antiquity uh, as a sort of monument to Athena or whatever exactly it was. Um, and I knew that there were other phases of the Parthenon's history that 
had never been researched and just remain shrouded in darkness, which is not to say that the sources about them don't exist. The sources, in fact, about them do exist. Um, and today I have the wonderful opportunity of speaking with Elizabeth Key Foden, uh, who has been researching um, a book on the, uh, the Parthenon Mosque. Uh, so the phases of the Parthenon's history during the Ottoman Empire. Um, the Parthenon was converted into a mosque, possibly soon after Athens was absorbed into the Ottoman Empire. This is in the mid-15th century. Uh, in the later 17th century, as many of you know, the Parthenon was shelled uh, by the Venetians, and because some munitions had been stored in it by the Ottoman garrison, it exploded, um, and that is why it looks the way it does today. Um, after that point, um, a smaller mosque building was, was constructed inside the, the remaining shell of the Parthenon, um, and that survived uh, down to the 19th century in the Greek Revolution, uh, which the ownership of the site changed hands, uh, let's put it that way. Um, but the, the whole period of the Parthenon Mosque is uh, unexplored until now. Um, Elizabeth has begun to uh, publish some articles uh, stemming from that research, and she's working toward a book project, which I very much look forward to, to reading. Um, and, and as you will see from our conversation, um, she is, um, as she says, uh, bored <laughs> by linear thinking. Um, and she's precisely trying to get out from this narrative of um, you know, classical things matter when they can be positioned within a genealogy that leads to you know, modern, you know, you know, Paris, London, New York, or Berlin, or whatever. Um, in fact, there were alternative paths, pathways that this tradition took. Um, and the one that we'll be looking at today um, is, uh, focuses primarily, I think, on the 17th century, uh, this period of great transformations in, in Athens. And um, I found extremely fascinating to hear about the um, interconfessional dialogues that were taking place in Athens uh, by scholars and Muslims and Christians who are trying to reconstruct the history of classical Athens. Um, and uh, these are stories that haven't been told and not familiar um, in, in the traditional narrative, and I think we need to start adding them. Uh, so here then is my discussion with Elizabeth Key Foden. By the way, I totally meant it about heavy metal. I think there's no form of popular music that has more overt classical references embedded in it than that. Uh, but there may be others that have uh, more covert or subtle references uh, to the classics. Uh, no one ever accused heavy metal of being uh, subtle. Hello, Elizabeth, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Andonis. Thank you for having me. So you and I have struggled with the problem of placing Byzantines and Ottomans and uh, you know Orthodox people under the Ottoman Empire into these sort of narratives that historical narratives that are favored, especially in you know Western countries and Western universities. And I'm thinking specifically of like the history of classical things. It goes from classical antiquity, jumps over the Middle Ages or kind of squeaks by them and gets to the Renaissance and from there leads to the modern nation states. Um, and also the history of the discovery of classical things is something that starts with the Renaissance and there are European travelers and so forth. And they go and they discover things in the same way that Columbus discovered the New World, despite the people who were living there, right, and, 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 and so on. And the Ottoman Empire has been placed in this kind of awkward situation where 
it's the repository of a great many classical things, monuments, manuscripts, texts, histories, landscapes. And there's this European project of how to appropriate all of that, right, for the narratives that Western nations are building and how to exclude the Byzantines and the Ottomans from those narratives. And so that's that's part of the, the, the struggle that we've had. And when it comes to talking about archaeology in the Ottoman Empire, there's, you know, you read a lot of the a lot of the standard histories where Europeans go to the Ottoman Empire and nobody there is interested very much in these antiquities, whether they're books or, you know, marble statues. And this creates a kind of presumptive argument in favor of exporting them, appropriating them, stealing them sometimes. Oh, because, you know, those natives don't really care much for them or are afraid of them because they're full of demons or whatever. Um, and in recent years, there's been a lot of good research on the kinds of archaeological interests and antiquarian interests that locals had. These are both uh, native Greeks and Ottomans, um, even Ottoman officials, and they were very interested in classical antiquities. And um, and a lot of good work has been done on that. I'm thinking of Emily uh, Newmeyer and Ben Anderson and others, and 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 you're doing you're you're part of the same project of restoring their agency to these narratives. Um, so say, can you say something about this just to set the stage? Yes, thanks. Um, I want to start with my first experience uh, of ascending the Acropolis of Athens, if I may, because I get to your point. What we're all worried about is the problem of different ways of knowing, different ways of knowing about the past we often talk about epistemology but really i think ways of knowing is a better way of thinking about it so when i um probably in 87 walked up the slippery marble steps the acropolis um when i went through the first building the propylium what caught my eye of course i'd been trained so far as a classicist uh nothing very late nothing even late antique really my eye was caught not by the beautiful marble coffers, which are impressive you see later, but all of the holes in the side walls where clearly beams had been stuck. And there were no little labels telling you what those were. But as I walked through, I saw more and more of these dowel holes and more and more signs of other things, other clearly floors. That clearly, this was actually a building that had had many, many other uses, but there was nothing to tell me about it. So this question of how we know about the past was, in my sort of perverse way, because my character is always to want to go and look, go around the back door, to go see, try to get another angle on things. It wasn't the, the Parthenon, I got that later, but it was the Propylium, which amazed me. Only much later did I realize I was looking at a space that had been a church. It would have been a chapel built into the Florentine palace that was the Propylia. And these are, these are things, I mean, that's what, you know, to, we'll gradually, presumably we'll talk about this, but then when visitors came, the Renaissance, Western visitors, or Mehmet II, I mean, that's what they saw. They didn't see this bare skeleton right. that we see today. So your question about how we're, how we're developing now, what we're developing is a way of trying to approach this what is that hole? You know, what we're trying to get at this richness that by and large, because of other archaeological fashions, we've torn away. We've 
left ourselves with very, very little physical evidence in right. many cases. So we have to try to resort to texts, which themselves are meagre, because as you briefly mentioned, the local people, local people don't write about their buildings very much. They live with them. Right, right, right. No, that's, it's very interesting. You, you saw what wasn't there. Right, you saw these the holes, traces. right, and you imagined, well, there was a floor, there's a wooden floor, there's a partition there. What was it doing, right? What were they doing with it? Uh, yeah, yeah. So not the bullet holes, because <laughs> there's some bullet holes. Oh, there are also cannonballs. There's some cannonball yes, holes. Yes, is massive. Yeah, they're, no, they're yeah those are the, the those re- will come later. Those the, are on the path. The real yeah, barbarians yeah. who pass by. Yeah, yeah. You no, you're that's that's fascinating that, that you you would use that in that way as a kind of metaphor for the epistemology, right? You, yeah. You're looking at the monument. You're seeing what's what's missing. And yeah, of course, uh, so much has been stripped away, not only just through, you know, the contingencies of history, but and bombings and such, but the the modern sort of restoration and purification of the monuments have, has taken away a lot of their history, which is kind of paradoxical. Um, so to getting into the, um, the Ottoman experience of the Parthenon and the Acropolis, um, so you say in one of your articles, that the Ottomans didn't necessarily interact directly with the classical monument, but as you put it, at one remove, because they were interacting with the Acropolis as it had passed through its Byzantine phase. So the Acropolis had already been Christianized, um, so appropriated for a monotheistic religion, and the Ottomans come in after that. Um, so what did the what did the terrain of the Acropolis look like when the Ottoman interpretation came along? What did we see when we walked up there? I mean, this is just to go back to one earlier thing you said I want to come back to in several times, which is the problem of the missing middle, right? So you say what we tend to do is we do this we use this horrible word reception. By which we mean we have the classical period, and then we have how we moderns how we receive moderns. Yeah, the yeah, sort yeah. of passive thing, and we leap over this central period that you and I are trying to get at. The uh, if you want to call it medieval, what do you want to call it? The Byzantine, the Ottoman, and when we try to get at them, I think we gradually move ourselves away from this way of thinking in a singular way about history, that there's singular frozen moments, and we're moving instead towards thinking of a space as an accumulation, thinking of a space as a a lived-in organic growth that is constantly adapted, which we know about from our own cities today. We know that, but we stop when we're thinking about historical periods or great buildings, we somehow stop thinking about it in this constantly moving way. And so we need to think that when the, the Christians, were live, Christians were living on this space, it was a lived in, it wasn't a place where people only went for ceremonial right. moments, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was inhabited. And the earliest depictions we have, alas, as you know from uh, your book, there are no Byzantine portraits of the Acropolis. Nobody was drawing, yeah. nobody was sitting on, even, and I'd love to find this, and maybe someone listening will find one, uh, to be challenged to find it, an icon, for example, that shows even a symbolic picture of right. of Athens at the time. We don't. Mm-hmm. This is something. But in new images are turning up all the time. Right now, we have a totally unknown, previously unknown uh, to scholars, picture of the Acropolis before its explosion, or actually during its explosion, which is in the Morosini exhibition at the Gennadius Library. And it belongs to the family that had been given the keys of Athens, who uh, 
during that year in which the Acropolis, inhabited Acropolis of Athens, was actually taken over by the Venetians, 1687, uh, that produced some of the earliest depictions of that inhabited castle, inhabited citadel. So it was a space from the Byzantine period onward where people were living. It wasn't a remote. It was high up. You didn't pop down... uh, well, we don't have descriptions, actually, of people using Athens. Again, it's not to be yeah. depressing, but this is one of the problems. We don't have descriptions of how it was like to live in the space in the Byzantine period, even in the early Ottoman, say, in the 15th, 16th centuries. We have descriptions of a few monuments and what people thought they were, how they were associated with the past. And how they were associated with the past in the Byzantine period, and for, so for the Christians and for the Ottomans, was through great men. So this, what we think of as a sort of gene- genealogical approach to the past, the way in which curious, impressive remnants, built remnants of the past, are always remembered through people. They're animated. Right, they're, association they're always, with the... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like to think in... I think associate, associative mode of thought is really important as a way of understanding this middle period that we skip over. It goes along with the idea of an accumulation. And so when I say that the Ottomans, uh, uh, one removed, inherited Athens, what, in a way, I have learned to think that way through my earlier late antique work because it was the Christians that actually dealt with had the encounter with the hot pagan past that right really ridged that that encounter so in a way even though the Ottomans were used as early Muslims would in the Arabic speaking world would use the figures of Shaddad Iram a lot of the figures of the ancient pagan past in the Quran are used as a way of encountering the strange pagan past in other parts of the world, for example, in Athens. They use those pagan worlds in order to try to relate their present to a pagan Greek past, which can be associated with a pagan Quranic past. Right, the one that made sense to them. Um, And the Byzantines had tried similar ways of associating with it. Um, and I, I think it's important to state for our, our, our listeners that when we say the middle ground, we're actually talking about the majority of the history of the place. Absolutely. Like right, right from the late 5th to the early 19th century, uh, that's most of the history of the Acropolis um, that we know. Well, and I guess not if you go back to the Bronze Age, but anyway. Well, yes, there's a conference right there today, actually, <laughs> yeah. on that subject. But it is good to point out the shock of how long a period has been wiped clean. Yes, it's a very long uh, leap to make uh, from classical to modern. And it's a violent erasure. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's also very, it's a very good approach to study um, the um, encounters of of Christians, Byzantines, and Ottomans with the site as as a continual accretion of layers um, upon layers. Um, and uh, I, I think the Byzantines did similar things in associating um, the various sites of Athens with ancient figures they read about in Plutarch, mm-hmm. uh, but also with um, uh, Christian figures such as uh, St. Dionysius, the first convert that Paul made in, in Athens, and he had a whole you know, textual tradition attached to him later, and, uh, it, and he actually had connections later with 
the Franks and with Paris and anyway. It, yeah, so there are a lot of associations that build up there over time. Um, so the first Ottoman that we know who visited the Parthenon was none other than Mehmed II. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So can you say a few words about him on the Acropolis? So what was the context? What was he doing there? And how, how do you read that moment? 1458, Mehmed was on his way to uh, take the Peloponnese. So I think it's very important to remember that he was there as a military leader, as a sultan. I mean, he was there to take over the Greek world that he was inheriting. And just a few years earlier, he had taken over Hagia Sophia. And I think that this is... You know, to skip to what we're really talking about, which is buildings and conversions of buildings and the multiple lives of buildings. We have to remember that his, that was a very fresh experience of taking over that great symbolic building of Constantinople. And it was going to become, an, an, you could say, obsession. I mean, a central point as in his imaginative, uh, his own imaginative archaeological, architectural um, world. And one important thing I'd like to mention about Mehmed II is that he, Suleiman, much later as well, there were figures leading the Ottoman world who represented truly a multiplicity of ways in which the Ottoman elite could imagine their own relationship to the Greco-Roman past and the Byzantine past, Rum. You know, you are the person who's played more, perhaps, yeah. with the idea of what this multivalent word, multiformed yeah. word means. But I think someone like uh, the Ottomanist Giancarlo Casale, I know I don't want to mention lots of lots of names, but he has a project which in many ways is quite similar to what I'm trying to do on Muslim Rome, where he's also talking about this, the the ways in which, according to political circumstances, Ottoman leaders could emphasize when they wanted to their connection to Alexander the Great, to Constantine, even to all of the great Caesars and all Mm -hmm. of the great rulers. And that's something that would come and go over centuries, depending partially on external political and internal political situation, the degree to which they wanted to bring out their Greek inheritance. It's very fluid, a bit like how we're talking about landscapes and buildings as being not exactly fluid, but layering and progressive. They do change, and I think it's really important we don't fix Mehmed in one way or another because he shows many even in his rule he shows that he has these many different relations but we know that one of the most exciting things I have to admit for me is he was uh, interested in building a library he was very interested in the philosophical and literary tradition to the extent of the uh, Greco-Roman Byzantine world to the extent that he had a, a scriptorium he had people finding manuscripts for him, translating them into Arabic. He had, I mean, it's, it's, there's been a lot of wonderful research on that and it's go, it's ongoing. And so there was this possibility of expanding when, when he wanted to that part of the power of Ottoman 
victory. Yeah, he had a lot of options available to him for that. And and you're quite right. To, I mean, I, I don't know that I had actually ever thought of it quite so clearly that within five years, he was responsible for converting both Hagia Sophia and the Parthenon. Amazing. Um, which and are, bringing it, these two inheritances together. I mean, this is what's very right. exciting because, as you say, the Parthenon that he walked into, he walked into, and, and I wish I could show an image at this point, yeah. but the temple was complete was intact it had there were it had suffered like any building does there'd yeah. been fires but it was basically temple converted to church converted to mosque it was intact until the venetians blew it up in 1687 we've just got to remember this was a phenomenal building yeah it was various adjustments had been made it had been the east had been the entrance had been reoriented so that you could pray towards the east of your christians but Mohammed didn't need a, a minaret. I mean, some people have said, oh, well, conversion must have happened much later. I don't... I, conversion happened immediately. And it happened through the gesture of prayer. That's right. how you convert a building, through action, how you use it. Yeah, yeah. And much later you could build a minaret. It's done. Yeah, I don't think the minaret was essential for... No. For the, um, and, and it had also been painted with images of saints. Exactly. And, and he must walked have been into a colorful. building full of images. Yeah. Yes, yes. I don't think that would have bothered him at, at, at that time, no. Um, so this is where you say the Parthenon Mosque, that we shouldn't see it as a, you say, a binary construct or a contradiction in terms. Um, and, and I The actual words Parthenon Mosque might yes, seem Yes, Parthenon Mosque, it is, I know. Yeah. It, it's a very rare um, conjunction of terms. Um, I, I don't know if you Googled it, if you would find very many instances of it. Um, it's it's the sort of thing that I think our training has conditioned us to not see, uh, not think about, or when we see it, to think that it's some kind of odd oddity, uh, but it made absolutely perfect sense f for him and for poster for his posterity at the time. Um, uh, so, so let's, just to be clear about the, the sequence here, uh, the sequence of identities, right? So the Parthenon is built in the 5th century B.C., as a, well, we're not entirely sure exactly what it is. It's some kind of monument to Athena and her relationship with the city of Athens. I think in the late 5th century AD, it's converted into a church um, honoring the, the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. And then in the 13th century, it's take, Athens is taken over by a Latin, um, you know, feudal lords, part of the Fourth Crusade. They turn it into, well, they keep it as a cathedral to the Virgin Mary, except it's a Catholic cathedral now, and it spends the next two and a half centuries as that. Um, and there's a sequence of you know, Burgundian, Venetian, and Florentine. Ca the Catalans. Oh, I forget the Catalans. Sorry, Catalans. <laughs> um, the ca Catalans, Venetians, Florentines, and Mehmed takes it from the last Florentine locals and then turns it into a mosque in the 15th, mid 15th century and so can you tell us a little bit about the sequence of of the the history of the parthenon mosque after that because mm. there are two mosques there are two mosques exactly well one of the most exciting things uh that i found in the writing of this book um is the discovery of an account by diego galan who was a Spanish a galley slave in an Ottoman ship 
And he managed to uh, get in the Parthenon. And so he had, gives us one of our few descriptions with his, he went in with an Ottoman galley slave, uh, fellow galley slave who was Muslim. These are the perks of being a galley slave. <laughs> Absolutely. It's amazing. You know, a little bit of tourism on the side. Yeah. And uh, so he actually is at the earliest extensive description. It's extraordinary. And it's very, very interesting. Of the interior, he, he describes these amazing sculptures outside. And he tries to think. He's trying to place it. He doesn't know. Can you imagine? We cannot today. We it. Impossible. It's hard to to get back. How can you get back? We know nothing about this building. He knew nothing about it. But was seeing all. He was seeing all three layers simultaneously. He's seeing it all there. The pagan, the Christian, the and and the Muslim. He knows that it has. He can see that it has elements of each. He cannot work it out. Some he tries to compare it with churches he's seen in, in Spain. Of course, he's already been to Istanbul, so he's been in other mosques. But it's a fascinating puzzling out, and he. So that, in a way, is to me the most exciting right. description that we have. It's also just fun to discover a completely unknown description of the most famous building. And, and we have to decipher what he was trying to decipher, and it's like a hall of mirrors, right? Yes. Right. Uh, so the next Ottoman visitor we have a detailed account from is Evliya Chelebi. Yes. Right? So this is um, 1667, um, and this is an Ottoman... A traveler who wrote an account of his of everything he saw around the Ottoman Empire. Um, so, um, so what was the Parthenon like in his time, or or at least so this is right before the Venetian bombardment? Yes, um, it's amazing that we had this handful of descriptions of it. I mean, really a handful. One of one of which the most extensive, the most extraordinary one is Evliya Chelebi. And then we had a few other French and English descriptions that we'll get to in a minute. What I want to say about Evliya is that it, it takes us back to Mehmed II and that interest in the philosophers as a way of connecting up the Ottoman world for with the past, which wasn't just churches that they had to convert, but it was also philosophy, which was or had also been translated and also had filtered down. And this is one thing we have to remember that Plato and Pythagoras and Apollonius of China, they had been in the Byzantine world household names. Nobody knew exactly maybe what they were, right, right. but they were. They, it is very interesting how these figures, they were great men from the past that one should know about. And the same is true in the Ottoman world. And so it's no way surprising people have found it really odd, but it's no way surprising that what excites Mehmed, uh, sorry, Evliya, when he goes into the uh, the mosque is he sees this beautiful marble throne which of course is it's Plato's, Plato's throne son, yes. and and so whether he was told by guides this is always something that's quite often hard to work out is this something he picked up locally or is yeah. it something that he was weaving through his own associative imagination what he knew about other places and what he expected of great buildings that they great building has to be associated with great men and yeah. so Evliya is extraordinary because he brings so much together. But he's also aware of the Christian dimension because he taught, he uses it as an opportunity to sort of to poke fun at the Christians who were gullible. This is very funny because a lot of the um, early scholars who worked on 
Evlia. I think he's just a complete fantasist. He's so gullible. He just has all these crazy stories, and he's always telling you about magnets and wild yeah, things, yeah. Um, things that float. And but in fact, he in the in the Parthenon takes over here and make fun of the Christians who, because there is this mysterious light which you've written about too. And it's an an old tradition about a sort of heavenly a numinous object glow. The glow yeah, yes yeah. and it's interesting to see how that continues through the latter it, that is something which clearly existed clearly people were seeing something that that and and there were also some objects that which, which glowed and he says oh well that's just he tries to explain it in scientific uh, ways and he and he says but the christians they thought it was a talisman of right. so so it, it's fascinating how he uses this building to sort of put in their place, the Christians who, let's remember, were the majority, were always the majority in Athens. In Athens, yeah. And, and of course... And when he, he came to visit, it was full of Christians. Even in classical antiquity, there were all kinds of weird fables and such going on about the Parthenon, the Acropolis. I, 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 just hearing you now, I remember, isn't it somewhere in Philostratus where he says that there's this crevice or a crack and it the fumes come out and it kills the birds who are flying over the Acropolis or they fall into it or something bizarre. Like this philosopher is in the third century um, who's you know, a classical scholar. And so, um, anyway, so, so Evliya's coordinates for interpreting the, the Parthenon are, so you, you call them the, the, the sages, the sages of Athens. Yes. And you, so you mentioned Plato's throne inside. What are the other sages and, and what meaning do they have for his sort of more Islamic approach um, to the building. Well, it's building. important to just note here that in the uh, Arabic Islamic world, from um, how early, I'm not sure, but uh, definitely, anyway, I'm trying to think how early exactly, but anyway, Athens is the city of sages. It's the Medina al hikmah and that's what it continues to be in to know nowadays in the Ottoman world. It is the ultimate city of sages. And it's remarkable, though, how rarely it was visited, it seems. And that's an important, that's important explanation for why we know so little about Athens until the late 17th century. It wasn't on the way to anywhere you needed to get to. Yeah. You just didn't need to stop in prayers unless there were lots of pirates and you had to take refuge right. somewhere, which is basically the reason why Diego Galan was there. Or you needed to sort of get some more provisions. But basically, it wasn't a place you would stop to. But... Um, but to get back to Evliya and the City of Sages, the other, I mean, it, his account is full of about, I don't know, over a hundred sages, he, he mentions, that they are that they inhabit these caves, which really existed around the base of the Acropolis. There are other monuments that are associated with him, with, with sages, the what we call today the Tower of the Winds was um, associated with Socrates. Uh, but it was also associated with Philip, the father of Alexander. So this is one of the themes that's very important to me, is how it's possible, contrary to our tendency from the 19th century, especially onwards, to want to get a single story. It's actually very, very possible, really important for us trying to look back at this massive middle period, to hold multiple associations in your way of understanding the world at the same time. And to me, this is a really, it's very difficult 
for us as historians, but to me, it's what's most interesting. It's about those holes in the walls, too, that I saw. But yeah. It's about how all these things, not just diachronically, but synchronically, can be brought together. How you can have multiple ways of explaining the world in the same person, and at the, or at least in the same community. So Evlia is very, very happy to bring together classical figures he doesn't know very much about, but he knows something about them, and philosophers that are active in his own tradition, but also contemporary explanations. I mean, and that's the when we get to our next uh, Ottoman uh, describer, this Mapa Tefendi, which we'll get to just a little bit later. He too, it's very, very fascinating how, to me it is, how they aren't, they aren't disturbed, it seems, by having many ways of explaining the world coexisting, you, you mean together. You mean layering different cultural traditions on top of each other and seeing a place in order to interpret it? That, it, yeah. yes, that, but also multiple ways of thinking at the oh, same sure. time. Oh, so, sure, yeah, yeah. So that, it, it's really important because I think we're taught increasingly to separate things out. And that's why when I try to approach this, I try not to separate it out too much, try to let things overlap in the way they were actually overlapping because once you separate them out it gets well, dis- it's distorted yeah. and too neat and clean those are the priorities of analysis <laughs> mm. we're breaking things into component parts and study them according to their own rules and then we lose separately the whole and we lose the whole yeah yeah which we all do that like we have to do it to a certain degree um so for example uh Evliya has classical figures he, he associates the sites around the acropolis and athens in general with them but he also brings in Solomon and exactly. the Queen of Sheba. Exactly. So what's their? So this is not part of the Byzantine uh, view. I don't think they're associated with Athens at any. Oh, with point. It's Athens in particular, because I right, was thinking. Right. I mean, Solomon obviously uh, plays a role as a great builder oh, in and a way of sure. bringing, and, and yeah. in other places too. But Solomon became in the Islamic tradition. People have written quite a lot about this recently, and as often they do it comparatively, side by side. It's fun when you can bring them actually together. So Solomon was the ultimate magician, builder, he was, king, yeah, yeah. alchemist. Yes, he could bring point. all right, this right. together. He represented knowledge and applied knowledge. Right. And so he, there's the story of him, of of Solomon and his queen, the his the queen of Sheba, Bilkis. His correspondent. Um, were they lovers? In- yes, well, she, yeah, went, she to, went to, to visit him. Yeah. From, she was from South Arabia, a princess from South Arabia, went to Jerusalem uh, and was amazed by his palace, the gra- glass floor in his palace. And through her own realization, her own self-knowledge of her deception, because she thought that it was wet. Oh, right. And so she lifted up her skirt and it was actually glass. So the whole use of Solomon and Bilkis is fascinating because it has to do about ways of knowing as well. So when again, we get epistemologies in this whole idea of the relationship of the male and female in the Ottoman tradition and how then that is brought into like the, new, the archaeological yeah. view of the world, the built world. And so very, very yeah. commonly we have thrones of Bilkis all over the Persian world, the world that was inherited, the world with a monumental past, very commonly is then attributed to Solomon or Bilkis. Uh, or who, who, are, who are you calling Bilkis? Bilkis is the Queen of Sheba. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Like the, Belkis and the Ottoman. So they were on their honeymoon in Athens. Oh, that's and what thought, they were doing. He okay. thought, yeah, they should. So they, they're on a honeymoon. That's a good he thought, place. Let me just build her a throne. And in fact, there are various thrones of Belkis around in Attica. There's one in Mount Pandeli, too. Which one is that? Well. Oh, we don't know where it is, but it's no. referred. Really? It's yeah. not the cave, right? Around the Daveli cave? What if it was the quarries? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, usually it's very striking, big monumental structures right. that become it's, have to be attributed to someone in the past. And the one in Athens is um, in the center is the um, temple the Olympian, the, the the Olympian. Of Zeus. Yes, yeah, yes, the temple of Olympian Zeus. Um, so um, Evlia calls that the throne of Bilkis, yeah. um, whereas Western travelers are calling it the Palace of Hadrian. The Palace of Hadrian. So it's a palace. Right. So there's this medieval Western, if you want to call it that, um, habit too of calling great buildings palaces. Yes. And if I remember correctly, the palace was built on top of the columns. Yes, exactly. It wasn't That's very interesting. It's the idea that it was supported. Those columns, yeah. those massive columns, were just actually support yeah, foundation yeah, the ground the floor yeah. yeah the parking yes yes yeah. um right okay um so let's talk about mahmoud effendi um who was just a couple generations later um and this is a new figure um i personally learned of him from you um can you say a little bit about who he was and what he wrote and how we know about it yeah so to be brief it's very very exciting and this again like diego galan mahmoud effendi these are new figures on the landscape and thanks very, very much to Gökçen Tunalı that she wrote a dissertation on his text, which is thought to be a single, or was thought to be when she wrote a dissertation, a single copy of a history of the city of, uh, of sages. So again, this name is always, it's all, Athens is always the city of city sages. Of sages. History yeah. of the city of sages. Or philosophers, but Hukema is more of sages than because they have philosophers also used in Arabic and Ottoman. So he's a local boy, right? So he is his family is from Thebes. He's he's from he's born in the late seventeenth uh, century. So generations. He's a local boy, and he. He may even be from Athens. He doesn't tell us exactly where he was born. He went off to Istanbul to study, and then he was sent back as the city's jurist, the mufti. And what's very, very exciting about what he does, he writes in um, a very complicated, flowery Ottoman style, and he decide he wants to he creates this synthesis of Ancient Greek history, he starts with Adam. So there he's like a bit like a Byzantine chronographer, chronographer isn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. And that's also what you expect of an Islamic chronographer. So he starts in this primordial sort of legendary biblical scriptural past. And then he starts interweaving it with what he knows about classical history, which he's got from books. And so he starts from Adam and he goes up to the aforementioned Dionysus, the Areopagite. He doesn't go to his... Uh, sorry, this is the source that he uses. Right. So he is using a source which uh, he goes up to his own day. But it's clear from Tunali that he's actually using a Greek history 
that's doing this. It's trying to bring ancient history together, published in 1675, the same year when you get all these foreigners coming right. first to Athens. There's this massive convergence of interest, right. really around 1675. It's quite, it's a real a sort of quickening. And so you get this Greek trying to bring together classical and Christian history. And this book is then... I believe persuasively argued by Tunnelli to then have become available, how we don't know exactly, to this Ottoman local history writer who gets two abbots, learned abbots from Athens, to sort of sit together and talk shop. You know, they're like swapping books and possibly even had at their disposal some of these early travel writers. So this, this is fascinating. So what we have here, this is early 18th century we have an Ottoman mufti who's interested in the antiquarian history of Athens and who's mm-hmm. writing a history of Athens, a, a comprehensive history of Athens in Turkey, in Ottoman Turkey, mm-hmm. who is collaborating in some way. He has informants in his sources Absolutely. with Greek-speaking he abbots. Them. He names them. My, my friend, you know, so-and-so. Yeah. Um, and they're sitting around talking about the history of Athens. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. No, that's incredible. And they're translating but, for him. And then he's, yeah, yeah. there's this process of cultural translation that's going on as well yeah. as, as verbal because he knows that there, there are multiple languages. He knows that some of this Latin, some of it's Frankish. What is that? Is it French? Is it Italian? And some of it is... Uh, it's, it's this and he real pres- he, Presumably movement. he knows like vernacular Greek, like he's speaking to them in, in Greek, which is the... No? Or they're speaking Turkish? Well, we don't know. That's interesting. This is an interesting moment, and just as, a, as an image to have for this period. Um, and it reminds me, um, I, I had a similar kind of sort of epiphany moment when I realized that Launikos Kalakokonvilis, right, the historian of the fall of Byzantium and the rise of the Ottoman Empire in the, in the 1450s, he probably attended the, the ceremony that Mehmed put together, the organized yes, yes. for the circumcision of his yes, son in Adrianople. And who was there? And in the who's crowd? there? Whoa. Are these two other major yes, historians, there. one a it's Persian, one a Turk, right? Ashik Pasajade yeah. and Shukrullah exactly. were yeah. both there and they both wrote about that event, yes. Yes. as did Laonikos. And I'm thinking, wow, you got these three people from, like, it's, and I called it, I think, somewhere, I called it the first. Congress of Ottoman historians. Right, right, right. I hope it was a bit more fun. <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. Yes, better a bit uh, too food, much. probably, I think. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, okay, so, and, and Mahmoud's text survives in one copy? Well, that's the exciting the, news. I'm springing this on you because oh. another copy has been found. Oh, right. Where? But I cannot say anything more oh, yeah. than that it's in a private collection, but it is going to be part of what's really exciting now. And this is a sort of moment of, quickening right now I think in the subject of Ottoman Greece because uh, there's a project uh, to translate to edit and translate the text oh, into wonderful. Greek into Greek which to me is marvelous so it's actually going to be translated into Greek first which okay and by a cast of people who are Greeks and Turks and possibly there's another really great uh, young Ottomanist here who has a Zeri background the moment has come for, I mean, Ottoman studies, the study of Ottoman Greece, not skipping over this middle, is really exactly. now. It's very, very exciting. Oh, and it's also cosmopolitan in the sort of way of what you're describing, the sort of the birthday party or the circumcision party. Yeah. You know, it is really, it's a very cosmopolitan moment for the study of Ottoman Greece. So one 
moment in his text that you highlight in your article is his discussion of Pericles. Um, and I, I found this fascinating, um, especially the, the speech that he puts into the mouth of Pericles, right? So he writes a speech that Pericles is supposed to have given to the, to persuade the Athenians, right? And the wise it, men, the wise counselors. The wise men. And by the way, I thought that was interesting just in itself, that he knew that Pericles is not the kind of ruler who can just order something and it happens, but he needs to persuade people to, yep. right? So he, he knows something about the political context. The right thinking learned men in a council yes. have to be addressed. And so what, what does he make Pericles say to persuade them? Can you read that? You have a paragraph in the article that's, that's yeah, really I fascinating. Do. I want to say that this is very exciting. And the reason I've thrown this out here to the world is because people have got to, got to work on this text. It's a phenomenal text and we need a lot of people working on it. But what amazed me is that I think what we've got here is the Parthenon as a surrogate temple of Jerusalem. The Parthenon has to be made sense locally it has to be made sense by, again, bringing it into that wider Islamic Ottoman world of practice, gesture, pilgrimage that makes sense to people. So what does he say? Pericles says, In noble Jerusalem, the sainted Suleiman, peace be upon him, has built a rare, valuable temple, and all high and low are desirous of going to worship in it. Right? The pilgrimage to Jerusalem. However, the Greek population of Rumeli which is extremely far away, has formidable difficulties in reaching Jerusalem to worship in the temple. But we must construct an outstanding and magnificent temple, unsurpassed in quality. Its walls should be of pure white marble. The roof that will rest on the walls should be supported on beams of white marble too. And indeed, so also should its ceilings and substructures be constructed of white marble. Our region will acquire learning and religious knowledge. It's most of its population already has a pious insistence on asceticism and worship. So what he's doing there, I think, and I'm happy to be proved wrong. I mean, I'm saying I'm throwing this out there. He's wanting to explain to an Ottoman audience what, why this phenomenal white marble building, which still was a phenomenal white marble building, why was it built? It had to be linked in with a wider sense of competition with Suleiman, is it? It's Pericles has to be part of this world of great religious builders. He has got to become a patron of a pilgrimage site. Right, because that makes sense in the Ottoman context and uh, also in the Byzantine context. Well, I know, of course. Right, you yeah, think yeah, of yeah. Uh, Justinian, don't you? And yes, you really this... do. And again, these, these links. It's fascinating that Mahmud himself, we always think, uh, people always say, uh, Parthenon, Hagia Sophia. If you're trying to think of buildings that have been converted multiply, I mean, of course, the Parthenon is much more converted. Uh, they always think of Hagia Sophia, but Mahmud makes the connection himself. He compares the Parthenon in its multiple conversions, its complex life, he compares it to Hagia Sophia. Yes. Um, right, he does so explicitly um, yeah. elsewhere, right? Something that a few Byzantines did as well, mm, indirectly maybe. Does Juaniadis ever? No, he doesn't. No, no, I think they kept them separate. Now I that think so. Yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah. What's been, I wonder whether he's the first, I, mean, I, I don't know whether he's the first to compare them. 
Yeah. But it is. Yeah, Jerusalem, it's Athens, amazing. and yeah. So this is Athens and Jerusalem via Constantinople. But he put, the passage where he does that is when he's describing what happened to it, because as you say, there were two Parthenons, there are two Parthenon mosques, and where where Mahmud in his history compares says that that building, that mosque, which was like Hagia Sophia, was as rich and beautiful and complex as that, is what the Venetians destroyed when in the 26th of September, 1687, <laughs> they finally got a bomb to let to go, to go through a gap in the, in the ceiling. So he talks about that. He talks about the bombardment. Yep. And he tells you how many people were killed. Ooh. And it was yeah so he does talk about that while at the same time so he brings in the contemporary at the same time the building that he has describes the interior i don't talk about this yet it's in the book um he actually the description of the interior is clearly taken from an ancient source because he describes something it's very wild and wonky and it's, it's a bit like evliya's quite um synthetically exotic uh, description but Would- still it's not of it's from his imagination plus an ancient source. He wouldn't have been old enough to remember. He doesn't. He doesn't say, I saw this as a child or anything. If only. Well, look, the thing is, we have a second copy now. Oh, I can't wait for this text to, I know. To, it'll yeah. be amazing. We, do, it doesn't, we don't have the conclusion of the current one. Whether we do the second one, we're hoping that the second one will actually fill in some of the gaps. Right. No, this is fascinating. <coughs> Um, yeah, and this this entire period, so the late 17th and early 18th centuries, there really does seem to be, um, as you said a moment ago, a, a convergence of interest in these classical antiquities on the part of, uh, well, apparently, you know, local Athenian abbots and local Ottoman muftis and visiting Europeans. I, this is the first time that they come to Athens in since, you know, Kyriakos of Ancona, I mean, in the 15th century, and uh, um, I, I think that um, Yakov, Elena Yakovaki yeah. had, right, had pointed Nasia. out... Uh, Nasia, sorry, Nasia Yakovaki in uh, An book. extraordinary book, which it, should it be is. translated. Anybody who it wants re- a Greek uh, a t- a translation project yes, from modern Greek into book. English, it's an amazing book, exactly, and Europe through Greece. I mean, it's, it's about the way in which... And how late European interest in the lands of Greece was to develop. Um, and it, it wasn't until this point uh, that we start getting descriptions. Um, so, so how do you interpret this whole moment? Uh, how do you see it, uh, the, this convergence and the different lines in which these different traditions took? What I'm trying to do for myself, and then I think for the way in which we approach Athens and Greece more widely, I want to find a way to bring in the Greek Orthodox local presence <coughs> excuse me because these sources we're talking about whether it's Evlia or the French traveler uh, the French ambassador Noadel and Antoine Gallon who was with him I mean we have these and then the Jacob Spon George Wheeler these English and French visitors who everybody talks about because we depend on them as our first visitors who all of whom came in the 1670s they all see things as outsiders, fine. We think they're all antiquarians, because we are. I mean, that's what we're interested in, the ancient world. But a, what a lot of... Noatel, the most important early visitor who came, he came to find out about the Greek Orthodox in the controversies in Europe between Catholics and Protestants. 
and that those controversies were very they were carried they were a live part of of European communities in the Ottoman world as well they were carried with Europeans wherever they went and the reason why already Martin Crucius who wrote Turkograikia the 16th century the reason why he was interested in Athens was okay he taught Greek he was a professor of Greek at Tübingen, and he need, he kind of wanted to visualize what Thucydides was talking about. And he actually asked for a map. He, he asked very, any Greek he could get his hold on. Can you draw me a yes, map yes. of Athens? Does it exist? Or they're all saying, does this place exist? And in fact, in his diaries, which are in Tübingen, there is a sketch map. There's a sketch map that uh, someone sent him. That someone, uh, a, a, a monk. Yeah. Drew for him, oh, which you, is all Christian. You had mentioned to him. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I. Yeah, I've got that. I'm actually going to talk more about this sketch map. Uh, but to get back to your question, what I what I want to bring out is the sketch map is all about Christ. It's all Christian monuments. So he's a monk of Mount Athos who's going, who's traveling in Germany. Usually, they're trying to raise money for people who are hostage. Who are right, in. right. So he's traveling. The Greeks are traveling, and. His view of Athens is a Christian city. You know, he's he's drawing a map that shows all the Christian churches. It doesn't show antiquities. It doesn't show antiquities. Our obsession is with the antiquities. And so when we talk about the early depictions of Athens, we're interested in that. And that's what we that's how we read the the earliest depictions. But actually a lot of the earliest depictions are part of warfare. I mean they're basically quite accurate pictures of the walls for example because mm. they're basically at the time of the Venetians who they want they don't care about whether there's a Christian yeah they want military they advantage want to, they want to make sure they can go in the, where the gates are right. so so a lot of the depictions aren't pla- it's not a place full of antiquities you see it's a place where people were living and so what I'm trying to get at is how can we as historians how can we get this fuller life picture of what people who were living there were doing and yeah these filters they have real consequences right so by the time you get to the early 19th century when the filters are all classical absolutely and the churches are filtered out not just in the, the maps but they're literally demolished like yeah. all of these byzantine churches are yeah. are demolished to make bits way for taken the apart the classical bits or the yeah apart. or the, the classical bits taken out of them or sometimes monuments destroyed in order to find classical bits Ooh, that weren't that absolutely. sometimes didn't even turn up like in the frankish tower um Ooh. and uh and and all this was done to create a modern um, uh, capital of the you know newly freed state that had all of its classical uh, you know credentials. Um, so yeah, no, these filters start mattering when people you know with <laughs> with designs on Athens start Im- imposing them on yeah. the topography. Right. Yeah. So can you say a few words about the book that you're writing? You've mentioned it a few times. So what's its scope? I can mention it, but actually I do something else. I want <laughs> to bring in Macriyanis at this point because. General Macriyanis, to me, is really important figure to illustrate in the Greek world the continuation of these multiple epistemologies, you want to call them, this way of thinking about the past, the way of thinking about the past and the present that can seem to us impossibly complicated because for him, he, so he was, you can tell me about, uh, I know we've talked about Macriyanis a little bit before in the past, great general of the, Re- the Greek, Revolution, Greek Revolution, you know, 1820s, yeah. And afterwards he has a political career. And he is famous for two 
works he wrote because he learned to write, didn't he? You looked yes. at his his, his writing is extraordinary. But he wrote two. He wrote his memoirs, and he also then later wrote this book. It's weird. I can't. Very, I can't very describe weird. it. Yeah. And so, in a reason, a reason it, it's called the uh, visions and wonders, I guess in English you'd say. And in both works, they're very, very different. But both of them refuse to be singular. They both bring together the present day, the classical, definitely the orthodox Christian wonders. And but there's everything's very complicated. Everything's mixed together in a way that if we try to decipher, we try to take it apart, we lose the problems of the day. And the reason I mention this, because I said I'm trying to get to the Greek Orthodox view that's so much missing. Um, and Makriyanis has this ex- two things. One, he has this amazing image of dancing, a Frank, so one of the Philhellenes that helped the, uh, this is the, in, in his uh, mm-hmm. memoirs, one of the Greek, one of the Franks who helped the Philhellenes, who helped the Greeks throw off the Turkish yoke. He's got him there. They're all celebrating at the Olympium, the columns of Olympian Zeus. They're all celebrating there because that's where people would go as a wide open space just outside the city. People were dancing there, and so on the one hand, he's obviously proud that we've got these foreigners who helped us. But he observes, look over there. There's the foreigner, and then there's a Greek, and they're dancing together. But Actually, their dances are very different. And you can see that pretty soon they're going to be fighting. Right. So he himself has this awareness. It's not just these Philhellenes who are adoring us, because the us that the Philhellenes are, think the Greek. It's exactly. a different Greek from Makarianis. Yeah. And then the second thing about Makarianis, I think is very relevant to the problem of the Parthenon and how to read it, is that he had, when he was writing the history of the revolution that he wanted to his the people the Greeks to know about, he very early on remem- realized that he wanted an ikoniki. He wanted to have a visual dimension to that history. He wanted there to be not just for people who couldn't read, because he himself had learned to read uh, much later as a mature person. He wanted he got a, a man who had been trained as a Byzantine painter to, with his instruction. He dictated, that's literally what Makriani said, he dictated to him how to represent the Greeks fighting in their cities, in their places. Hmm. And the way in which he represents Athens and the Acropolis is fascinating because he, even though he showed, they're all depicted in local, the way people were dressed, very much Ottoman Greek clothing. There's a sort of, there's an abstraction of what you expect from icon painting, where things are abstracted, which focuses on the buildings. So basically oh, right. the lived, messy lived experience is Wait. taken out and you get the ancient buildings and also some of the medieval buildings. We have his his description, his uh, his commission for what he wants? Or do we have the paintings themselves? We have the paintings, have the paintings. and the text okay. that goes along with it. Wow. And they're a very fascinating example, almost like what we call today artist books because there's both, there's writing and there are images. But the, but the 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 last thing to bring up about that and this complicated the complicated nature of how we know about the past is that sure he alighted on this Greek he had been a fighter as well yeah. he was trained in painting but before he tried he hired a Frenchman to do some paintings for him and he paid he got the Frenchman to do three paintings he sort of told him about they had a hard time communicating a bit but told him about these various battles and. 
he just was so disgusted by the French. You imagine a French painting yes. of the early 19th yes, century, yes. very romantic. And he didn't, he didn't no like that. No people in them, really. He was so appalled by the total lack of connection between the story he was telling and the way the French represented it. So to me, in a way, those Macarianis represents the complexity of these multiple ways of knowing, these multiple traditions that all converge, all come together in... So he really is at a moment where the us is under construction, Absolutely. right? And and in, in these Absolutely. two moments that you mentioned, if I if I read them correctly, Ooh. he's he's looking at the the Frankish component or contribution and the indigenous sort of Greek Orthodox, and he's trying to find a way to make these work, but he's ultimately coming down on the Greek Orthodox side as a way of literally representing what his experience was. And okay, yeah, no, Makriyanis is very difficult to, to to deal with. So I wish you luck <laughs> with that. He's <laughs> but I want like to bring him cats. into the, the, the complexities yes, no, it, of knowing as historians. A, yeah, how yeah, do yeah. we begin to tease out that sort of complexity? Okay, we're almost out of time. Um, my closing question is: You want to recommend two books to our listeners? I have two books. They have nothing directly to. That's do. fine. Great. But I do have two books that have to do with this problem of how we think about the past, how we can know without destroying, how we can know without separating it out and losing. One is a book that I read many, many times, which is Carlo Levi's Christ Stopped at Eboli. So Carlo Levi was an intellectual from the north of Italy who was exiled in the in 35, 36, I think, in the south of Italy. And he describes life in a very, very, very simple village, and it's an extraordinary example of how you can write about as a person who's got all this, all these educational frames that we've got in our built into us through our education, but write about in an empathetic way, still remaining analytical, something okay. very, very different. The yeah. other thing, the other book is um, a new book by a historian of Africa, Fauvel. It's called The Golden Rhinoceros, Histories of the African Middle Ages. And it's written uh, for a general audience, which is what my Parthenon Mosque book is going to be, now that I've written all these Great. scholarly yes. articles. I want this book to be for a very wide audience. Every Greek taxi driver I mention it to, to it loves the idea because they all say the same things that nobody ever told us. Exactly, yeah, I don't know anything about that, yes. You know, they feel... So this book, Fauvel's book, is really about how to deal with Middle Ages. How do you deal with periods where we have so little evidence? So how, how can we use the widest variety of sort of evidence to get to make something out of the silence? Yes, and Africa is a particular problem when it comes to you know, oral sources and so on. Uh, well, thank you, Elizabeth. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Andonis. Thanks very much.